Okay, so we are starting a new series, new time, new series, new blazer. It's all coming together. And uh, we want to do something that I'm really excited about. We got to do something very similar at Camp 8 this past summer, where we worked through the whole narrative of Scripture. It was really, really fun. And it was neat to see uh, some of these senior teens um, grappling with the fact that the whole Bible is actually quite ingenious in the way it's stitched together. It's not just a random collection of interesting information that's usually confusing. It turns out it has a really, really important plot. And so uh, it seemed to be a blessing up there. And so we thought, hey, this might make uh, a really great sort of extended Advent series in a way. Advent is just the Christmassy word for the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And so we thought maybe it would be interesting to go through uh, finding how the whole Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so we're calling it the Word. And uh, I'm really excited about it. Here's what the outline will look like. You can put that up. So the next few weeks will look like. So today we got an intro. We're going to be looking at creation. They all start with C, so you know it's biblical. Creation, covenants, and then we'll skip in one because we've got the Christmas banquet. Uh, crowns, cradle, crosses, and churches. And so this is going to be what we're going through over the next few weeks. And I'm really excited about it. We're going to anticipate Jesus together. And then, you know, at Christmas, we'll get to talk about, okay, so he came, what now? It's going to be great. So what I want to start with is just reading John 1, the first few, the first few verses in the book of John. And I personally think this is, if I was to pick the most beautiful and deep paragraph or two ever written in human history, it's probably this paragraph. I don't know, maybe Romans 8. Romans 8 is beautiful in its logic, but John 1 is beautiful in its mystery and its seemingly infinite depth. And you could read it a thousand times. It would still uncover more things. So we're going to do that. Maybe we'll do it every week. I'm not sure. But let's just read this together. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. And... We ask that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand the beauty and depth of this message. Oh, Lord, we, we feel uh, in awe of your majesty and um, just how big you are, how beautiful you are. We feel rather small reading a passage like this in light of your greatness and your all-surpassing glory and your immense love for us that you would choose to actually come dwell. So, Father, would you illuminate all that you want to illuminate through your words today and through this series? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 
What is the word? We entitled the series The Word because it's kind of a, a term that has confused me. I haven't really known what people mean when they say the word. It seems to mean several different things. I don't know if you've experienced this, if you've been around the church for a while. Um, the word, word, <laughs> is translated from the Greek uh, word logos. And uh, it's a term that Greeks used as a placeholder for the meaning behind everything. If Greeks said the word logos, what they really mean is the reason for all that is, the why, the why of it all. Or it's actually more like the who, why, when, what, and how of it all. It's, it's the reason behind everything. So when we're translating the word logos into word, what we have to realize is what that author is trying to tell us is in the beginning was the word, uh, in the beginning was the word really means in the beginning there was already everything that always was and the reasons behind it all. It's, it's so hard to, to sum up, but it's, it's the word that the Greeks used for that. But then this passage is so profound in that all of a sudden Apostle John here, trying to sum up all that Jesus was after a whirlwind tour with him, alongside him, decided to take the word logos and call it a he. That's what he decided to do. It was very, very genius. Just going, okay, so you know the reason behind everything? He. And then he, and then he kind of goes back and forth, you know, in this passage we just read. It's like, okay, is it a, is it a thing? Or apparently it's a he. And so this is where we get the saying that we say in our church a lot, which I just love. It's the idea that truth is a person, which is kind of one of those sentences you have to chew on for decades. Truth is a person. Okay, seems paradoxical. So then we think, okay, so the word is Jesus. All right, okay, cool. The word, is, the word is a person. It's a he. Okay, got it. But don't we call the Bible that? Don't we call the Bible the word? So is Jesus the word? Or is the Bible the word? What's going on here? I want to read a quote from a, a very famous pastor in the 20th century, also a very famous theologian. His name's Karl Barth. And... Um, he says this about the word, and he, he, he's desperately trying to sum it up in a paragraph, so he, watch him struggle. What kind of word is it then? If only one could put in, in, in a few words, but it can't be done. The word of God is infinitely rich and diverse. It embraces all things in their entirety. It is the whole truth. Who could try to express truth in its entirety in a few words? Nevertheless, I'm going to try. Essentially, it is quite simply this, that God is not so much the highest or almighty or something like fate or some sort of final mystery, but that he is our God so that we human beings are likewise not some sort of creatures endowed with a little reason, but the people of this God who says of himself, I am your God. So a little bit intellectual, I know, but here's what Karl Barth is saying. The word is the truth that is revealed to us. So apparently the word is something about ultimate truth that isn't abstract, it's personal. It's related. It's a related truth. I know this is heady, but I find it to be very profound and interesting because it has a lot of implications. So if it's a relational truth, then it's a word spoken from someone to someone. It's communication. It's love. And so what the biblical authors are doing is they're saying the word equals 
whatever is revealed to us personally by God. So it's the Bible, because that's revealed to us personally by God. And it's also God incarnate so that we could see him. It's somehow both. It's everything that God reveals. And so when John 1.14 says, uh, you can put that up, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. It's another utterance. It's another spoken, said thing where the truth is just this related idea that's inextricable from something personal, which is, a, which is an interesting way to view truth. Now, this is a very Hebrew thought, what I'm saying. It's a very ancient biblical idea that truth is related, that truth is discovered in relationship, that truth is spoken and received. It's something that's given from another to another. That's a Hebrew idea, because they would be thinking, uh, what could be more, I kind of wrote down a fake quote from them, they would say something like this, what could be more real than communion with our creator? What could be more at the bedrock of everything than understanding why someone would go through the trouble of making us all? And so a Hebrew mind, and, and an ancient mind, is thinking, wow, okay, if we're going to find truth, this is a who question. This is a who did this. That's, that's the way they're thinking. Who would bother? It's a Hebrew thought. Then what happened is that uh, uh, this Greek thinking started to come into play. This is the beginning of sort of the modern age. Actually, the very bedrock of our society is still very based on Greek sort of philosophy. And here's a little discourse between Jesus and Pilate, who's a Greek, he's a Roman, but he's a Greek thinker because they were all Greek thinkers at the time. This is a conversation between Jesus and Pilate, the guy who ends up, you know, allowing him to be crucified. Listen to this. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose, I have been born. And for this, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Listen to this. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what Jesus is saying is I am the truth. Those who know my voice know the truth. You see the deeply interpersonal, related way in which Jesus is trying to convey what the deepest and most essential of truths is? It has something to do with my voice, capital M, my voice. Ah, and so this is obviously really confusing. This is not the way the Greek mind works, uh, to which all of our society kind of still gets its cues today. For us, truth is abstract and impersonal. We go on a quest to find truth out there somewhere in science or abstract things or some sort of ultimate set of facts that we have, I guess, yet to arrive at. But that's what we're on our way towards. So if you think that, you're, you're in good company with just secular society and you're in good with company with another Greek mind named Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? He says, what is it? Because I think that when we're on a quest for truth outside of something impersonal, it becomes very, very tiring, very, very huge and large, and I don't know about you, but I would just throw my hands up and go, well, what is it anyway even then? Can we even know? And like Pilate, he's got Jesus standing in front of him going, it's my voice, I'm the truth. And as a good Greek, and so the Hebrews are trying to kill him because the Hebrews are, are very much tracking with the fact that this dude says that he's God and he's saying that he's the truth. They're totally clicking. Be like, you? Nah, you're not who we were expecting. Pilate, on the other hand, is going, you're crazy. What is truth? And he's missing the fact that truth is standing in front of him. So, okay, there we go. 
that's a little bit of a, my meager attempt to try to explain what we're going to try to do here in this series is go, what is the word and how do we actually discover what the truth of it all is? So the Bible isn't uh, dismissive of abstract and personal scientific truth. It's not dismissive of it. It's just not very concerned with it. It's not trying to, it's not trying to figure out what it is. It's trying to do something very different. It's trying to get to the deepest of truths that apparently has something to do with related truth. So why does all this matter? Thanks for bearing with me on all that. But why does this matter? When we approach scripture with a self-centered mindset that is trying to aggregate truth from all of the input that we can get, and the Bible becomes one of those things, because we're not interested in truth in a personal way, we're interested in truth in a self-centered way, where we collect all the information and put something together ourselves, which usually leaves us like Pilate going, wow, what is truth? But we still are on that mission. When we do that, the Bible starts to get super confusing and frustrating because it wasn't trying to reveal truth to you in that way. So here's what it typically becomes. I just wrote three things down. It probably becomes a lot of twisted versions of what it's trying to be, but here's a few. Could be a behavior manual. Maybe you, you approach the Bible this way as a behavior manual, right? What are the rules? And there's a couple of rules in there that are nice and clear. You're like, okay, don't do that, don't do that. Okay, cool. And all of a sudden, it's just got hundreds of rules that don't apply to you, or do they? Which ones do, which ones don't? And it just becomes a very confusing behavior manual. So you're like, okay, maybe it's not a behavior manual. This isn't working super well. Maybe... It's a love letter from God to me. Isn't that a nice thought? That he wrote you a letter that you go and take away into your closet and you find warm, fuzzy feelings. And then you print a few out and put them on your wall. And it's a a lovely personal experience between you and God. And so you can find a few of those. Psalms is nice for that. Not all of them, though. You got to skip a few. And all of a sudden, you got your, your, your... you know, knee deep in blood and circumcision and people being stuck on poles. And you're like, this is not a very nice love letter to me. I'm not, this is not serving that purpose very well. What about an answer book? You ever tried to approach the Bible trying to get answers for your questions? I don't know. I tell this to youth kids sometimes. Like if you're looking at the Bible and trying to find out what happened to the dinosaurs, you're going to be super, it's just not trying to answer that question. So as an answer book, it also gets really frustrating. It'd be like uh, trying to cook a nice meal using Gordon Ramsay's autobiography. (laughs) Really hard. You'd get to know Gordon, but he would not help you make a souffle very well because he's not trying to do that with his autobiography. So it is trying to help us live rightly. God is trying to speak to us through it. It does have something to say about history, and yet it's doing it in this seemingly super inconvenient way, and it's doing it in a way called a story. The Bible, and this is the big drum roll thing, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's what it's doing. That's what the whole thing is doing. Uh, Jesus even says this. You could put Luke 24 up there. This is after he's resurrected, rode to Emmaus. He said to them, some disciples who hadn't recognized him or had, had uh, just recognized him, he goes, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is just what they called the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Who would love to be part of that Bible study, hey? Just Jesus sitting down with you, opening up the Old Testament, being like, yep, that's what this means, that's what this means. I would love to be part of that Bible study. So, which means, which means this whole thing, this whole thing is trying to help us know a person. Trying to help us know a, a person. 
So I have a couple metaphors, a couple metaphors for this. Uh, uh, if you guys were at chapel, you would have heard me use these metaphors, but I, I like them. I want to use them again. The Bible is like my wife and my mom and my grandma. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible's like my wife in that she's very complex. I have not figured her out yet. Now, would I ever want to? If I had figured her out, I mean, she probably stopped becoming a person and started to become some kind of figment of my imagination. That'd be a tragedy. She wouldn't be a person anymore. She'd be some sort of concoction inside my own head. Of course it's complex. She's a person. But I was also like my mom. My mom has, hey mom in Hawaii if you're watching, um, uh, the, my mom has like seven, seven to 10 stories she tells. Maybe your mom's like this too. She tells them over and over and over again, and we all repeat that we have actions, and we all do them along with her, because she tells them in the same way every time, much like the Bible. And what she's doing is she's actually bringing the whole family together, around seven to ten memories. It's different. It's, it's the same stories, but it's doing something. You'd get to know the Mitchells if you hung out, and you heard all ten of those stories. You'd have a really good window into what Mitchells are like. But I was also like my grandma, who's not here. She's not feeling well. But she's probably watching online too, so hi, Omi. Uh, she has some photo albums. And she shows us them lots. <laughs> now, she seen the photo albums, seen all the pictures. Um, if I was to ask my grandma, hey, could you put the photo album away and just like tell me about who you are? You know what I think she'd probably do? I think she'd probably pick up the photo album again and hand it to me. This is who I am. This is when we came to Canada. This is when we went to Hawaii when your mom was five. And this is when we went to, this is who I am. How else would she answer the question? Here's the photo album. It's, it's, it's a different, I know there's no pictures. There's maps maybe. But there's a, it's doing a different thing. So there you get the point. So what seems inconvenient about it is actually essential to the objective of helping you get to know a person. So here's the problem is that this story was written over the span of 1,500 years up to sometimes 3,000 years ago, by 40 different authors, by, to, and about Asian people from a different culture. So there's some hurdles to the story. There's some hurdles. It's not grandma's photo album or mom's stories. It's ancient Jewish, largely meditation literature. And somehow, that has deep implications into you and I, like our lives. So there are, there are some very real hurdles that I understand when people kind of give up on the thing. So hopefully we can do something about that. So because we approach this and we look at it with kind of like the, oh, behavior manual, I don't know, take your pick, maybe what it wasn't meant to be, we get a little bit lazy. And because we have this abstract sort of self-centered way of approaching, gathering knowledge, and finding truth, we wind up with a version of the Bible that isn't actually it at all. And it's actually the very pop, it's what most people think Christians believe is the lazy version of the story that is looking at the story with a self-centered perspective and trying to stitch it together based on what it, how it matters to you and I. This is what happens. And I have a, I'm going to draw you a diagram about what that typically looks like. So uh, this is what the lazy version of the Bible story is. Over here, you've, this is a timeline of your and my life. And it's got a bit of a why at the end of it. Some of you know where this is going. Uh, over here, we've got, uh, we've got earth, right? This is earth, and right here you've got me, okay? This is me, 
And there's a, at the end of life, you get to go to one of two places. You get to go to a, I don't know, some kind of cloud-based place that has uh, naked babies in it or something, and it's called heaven, right? And you get another place that is a, a subterranean torture chamber of some kind called hell. And what most of life looks like is uh, you get to go on this journey of, uh, of like trying to be living above the line, and then you do something bad, and you go below the line, and then you, oh, you had a good repentance moment, you went on a youth retreat or something, and you lived above the line, and then you came back, ah, you had a bad day, and it's very, very exhausting. And hopefully, the joke is that when you get hit by a bus, hopefully that when you get hit by a bus, you were above the line that day, right? I don't know, isn't this the version of the story that kind of, and hopefully, bus impact day is on a good day. And this is kind of the story that gets told. Now, maybe you're looking at this and going, I think I kind of believe that's what's going on right now. <laughs> no problem. But we're here to kind of maybe do a little bit more work and figure out what the story the Bible is actually trying to tell. And it isn't this one. It isn't this one at all. So what would Jesus' diagram look like? If he was to draw this and correct it for us, what would it look like? Well, first, let's look at Mark 1, 14. You can put that up. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, if you was to draw the diagram, it'd be more like this. You've got this, which is earth. And then you've got this, which is heaven. And it's coming near. Somehow it overlaps a little bit. Sorry, guys. I should move out of the way for you a little bit. Absorb, take a mental image, and we're back. So uh, that's, the, that's the diagram Jesus would say. So it's coming near, it's getting closer, it's overlapping more and more. This is good news. So something about heaven is not some distant place at the end of just a death. Heaven is apparently somehow here now, like right, like right, right now. That's really great news. That's actually a way better story already than something that you like hope you, you used to call it fire insurance back in the day where you don't want to go here, so you should probably do some good stuff so that you don't wind up in the fiery place. It's a very, not very compelling story, but apparently heaven is accessible now. Well, now I'm leaning in. Now I'm interested. So here's, you notice there's no hell in our diagram yet. Ah, this is kind of the bummer news. But, but yeah, I put this verse up real quick so that you don't think I'm making this up. First John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Oh, so technically, and if you've been alive for more than five minutes, you will know that hell is very much alive and present in our world all the time. That's not great. So not only is it alive and well, it's something that we help create and it's something we unleash on people all the time. We participate in it. In James, it says that our tongues are lit on fire by hell, and our tongues are the things that actually generate the most hell in this world, and that's probably very true. And so we participate in this situation that is a little bit dire, but apparently, Jesus is saying that it's kind of getting squished out somehow. So now I'm really interested. I'm really interested. I don't want the hell in this world. I want the hell gone. So does Jesus. So here's what, this is, this is kind of the whole tension. If, you, if, you, if you're tired of the Bible and you're like, oh, this is tiring, let's set up a tension for you to, to approach it with 
that will have you leaning in like nothing else because this is compelling stuff. Jesus wants to get the hell out of earth and your neighbor and coworker or whoever doesn't know about Jesus wants the same thing. You ever met anyone that doesn't want less hell in the world? I haven't met anyone. Same story. We all want the same thing. (laughs) What's super interesting is that Jesus actually wants it more fully and completely than any of us do, and he takes it way more seriously. So here's how we'll explain that. Jesus takes social, any social justice thing ever, he he cranks it up a notch. So no one's going to disagree with me if I say something like up here, like sex trafficking is just like hell on earth, right? Obviously. So then Jesus would come along and go, okay, let's, uh, let's definitely get rid of that. Yep. But let's take it one step further. How about we get rid of lust altogether? They're like, oh, well, that's better. What about, uh, we can all agree, uh, that poverty, poverty's not great. Jesus comes along and goes, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Here's how we're going to do that, though. Let's get rid of greed. Like, oh, well, that's better. What about genocide? Uh, yep, let's get rid of that. But let's, let's actually address the root. Let's get rid of pride and any kind of egocentric attitude. Let's just get rid of that. And so maybe you're tracking already and you're thinking, okay, this is presenting a problem for you and for me. Because if God's gonna get rid of lust, greed, and pride, he's gotta get rid of Jonathan Mitchell, Right? If, he's, if we're really gonna, I'm, I'm talking about solving the problem. The Bible's trying to solve the problem, not just mitigate it. Not a fundraiser for poverty, ending it, right? This is, this is, this is the compelling story. We're, we're all part of a watered down version of the story right now. We're all trying to raise money for those things and we should. But the Bible is trying to end it. In which case, you and I are part of the problem. I'll, I'll speak for myself. If you're gonna end the problem, you gotta end me. I'm just being honest with you. Lust, greed, pride, guilty, guilty, guilty. So God wants to get rid of wickedness at its source, the corrupt human heart, and the only way to actually completely end it is to get rid of you and me. So this is the lean-in moment. How is God going to get the hell out of the world without getting rid of you and me? Because he loves us. So we put God in a bit of a predicament with this. So he would say something like this, made up quotes. How do I be merciful to you and not make you pay pay for your betrayal of heaven? How do I be merciful to you and uh, not make you pay for your betrayal? I don't want you to pay. I want to have mercy on you. But, and how do I make sure justice is upheld for the sake of all the damage you've done, right? We love the mercy gospel, right? We love the forgiveness gospel. That's a nice one, right? Oh, Jesus forgives us all. Great. And we go, all right, fine. And it's not a very compelling message. But when you start to throw in the fact that actually justice also has to be upheld because love is both perfect mercy and perfect justice, and God is fully love, meaning he has to be both 100% merciful and somehow 100% just at the same time, that's a trick. So, I mean, the example would be, uh, you're taking advantage. Okay, uh, a childhood scenario, you're the little sibling and your older sibling punches you in the face because you, whatever, whether you deserved it or not, it happens all the time. You get punched in the face, you call mom and dad over and mom and dad go, 
It's all good to the older sibling. Mercy's in full swing. Justice, not so much. And you will let mom and dad know that justice has not been upheld right now. Right? There's no justice here. So what do we do? So criminals want mercy and victims want justice. And we're both, you and I are both criminals and victims. If we're honest with ourselves. So we don't have time to fully dwell on this yet. We're going to get to Jesus in a few weeks. But just to give you the basic answer right now, Jesus is perfectly merciful. His sacrifice is perfectly merciful to all sinners, me, and is perfectly just to all victims, me. Simple, right? So why doesn't the Bible just do that? And why is it so long and complicated? Well, this is what we'll end with. Uh, I want to, we need to just talk briefly about why the Bible is the way that it is. So why did it take so long? Why, why is it such a long story? And why is it, like, that's a simple idea. Why didn't Jesus do this a long time ago? In Mark 1, uh, chapter 1, you can put this up there. This is what, this is where, you know, it's a good, it's a good case to start for going, well, how Jesus is going to do this? Like, how, how's he, how's he going to, how's he going to accomplish all this? And you go to Mark 1, verse 1, you go, here we go. This has got to be the answer. And it starts off pretty good. It says, in the beginning, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And you're like, great. Here we go, beginning of the good news. This is gonna be real easy. Verse two, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What? <laughs> like verse two, you're lost already. Uh, verse two, Mark starts quoting Isaiah and Malachi, assuming, assuming you are well-versed, well-versed in the ancient Jewish prophetic meditation literature. So something about the whole, I don't know, this much of the book is super essential to understanding who this Jesus person is. We're jumping into a story that's been rushing for like 2,000 years already, and we're jumping into it, and the author of Mark is going, we gotta, we gotta understand the full picture of who God is here. We gotta understand the whole thing, what's going on. So apparently we need that whole thing to under, have a relational knowledge of him. So remember, the word is a relational truth. It's an intimate knowledge. What the Bible is trying to do and what we're gonna try to do over the next bunch of weeks is introduce us to a person and have us fall more and more in love with him. And I'm glad it took a long time to tell because it gives a picture of a faithful, loving God that we're both meant to be in awe of and to fall in love with. And I think the word is just a long story about a God who's desperately after each one of us. So this is, this is what we'll end with. Much like any loving relationship, we don't have to choose to be in it. And so this is really the, another tension-filled part of the story is like you don't have to join the story. It's an optional thing. Um, what's, what's so fun about the end and very sobering about the end, so it's like super good news and also really, really like, oh man, what's gonna happen? Is the end of the story that we kind of get in Revelation, skipping way ahead, is this picture of heaven and earth being overlapped again with Jesus fully in charge. Fully overlapped again. This is great news. That's just, this is, I want this. Don't you guys want this? I want heaven and over, earth to overlap again. I want the, all the hell gone. And it kind of begs the question, where is, where is hell? And it's just outside. It's out here. And the term that I think is really interesting is that this is a monument 
to human free will and choice. I don't think God wants that to exist, but it has to, to preserve your ability to actually choose him out of love and to approach his story as one of free choice so that you're engaging with a person, not you're not a robot. And now hell, whatever it is, is outside the city, and it's a monument to actually something that was essential for love to be the whole playing field. And that's what the playing field is for you and I here tonight. Love is the playing field. Relationship is the playing field. Not knowledge. Knowledge helps, but it's not what's really going on. So you might think this is harsh, but uh, a relationship with God is where life comes from. Uh, you know, if the person, you know, if you're, <laughs> if someone has a crush on you and is pursuing you and you say no, I mean, there's less, less <laughs> disastrous consequences to that, but that person didn't create you. And the person who gave you life wants to give you more life forever. That's the story happening. Life was designed to be eternal so that the love relationship that God designed to exist between you and me would last forever with no death. That's the story. And he's trying to redeem the whole thing that we messed up. And so the question becomes is, do we want eternal life? Which is the exact same question as, do we want him? And so if it seems harsh, then I would encourage you to go on this journey with us to uncover the immense beauty of this God that we serve. If it seems trivial to you and maybe not worth it and a little harsh, what I hope as a result of this series is that you will go, wow, the character of God, oh my goodness. And uh, final story, and then we'll close. Uh, where I kind of fell in love with this stuff is... Um, uh, just took a biblical theology course like a year and a half ago. And as we were going through this course, our biblical theology professor was, it, we, we, it was so fun. We got to go through the whole scripture in three days and it's just all day, every day. And all the hyperlinks of where Jesus pops out is, in the story is so fun. And then, but he'd have to stop every now and again and just go like, oh, Yahweh guys, hey, wow. Just the term for, you know, God the Father, Yahweh, man. And he'd stop every 20 minutes and just have to go, Yahweh, hey, man. And then we keep going. And I think it's the thing I remember most from the class. Because if you really start to read the book for the way that it was meant to be written, the loving personhood of God punches you in the face. He's just everywhere being super loving and perfect and chill-inducing the whole time. Granted, a little hard to see. I get that. I get that it's an old book and I get that it wasn't written to minds like yours and mine. I get that. But when you see it, it's so compelling and the person of Christ pops off the page. So I'm gonna invite the worship team back up and I just wanna pray for us as we, uh, as we enter on this journey together. Lord, um, uh, thank you that you, <laughs> thank you for becoming flesh. Thank you for speaking your word to us in these deep and profound ways. And Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Um, Lord, right now, if there's anybody here that's just wrestling with the truth of all this, Father, I pray that you would uh, woo them by your spirit. 
that you would draw close to them in your personhood because we believe you're alive and living and active and your word is still being spoken to each one of us even now if we would listen because you're alive. So Father, thank you. Thank you that the love story didn't end with our betrayal, that the love story doesn't end with our ignoring of you, but that you long to bring life and life to the full.